Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Michael, and I have the privilege today of opening up the Word and sharing some thoughts with you, and I'm looking forward to doing that. And I want to start by a basic observation that I don't think any of us will disagree on, and that is that sometimes people do weird things. Amen? Yeah, you're like, that's a weird thing to amen, but you feel me. Like, you look around life, you're just going about your business, and you see things or hear about things or read about things on the internet, and you think to yourself, I'm not sure what would possess you to do that. But I follow this, I sometimes follow this, um, this uh, it's a news blog called Crazy Weird News. And, you know, its content is obvious, and there's a sidebar, you know, odd animals, odd celebrities, odd auctions, all these things. And then there's this one called Scary Strange. And, of course, I'm going to click on that one and see what's going on. And a couple, a couple weeks ago, I click on Scary Strange, and I, I, I read about, maybe you've heard about this, it's actually uh, almost a decade old now. There was this design for a roller coaster called the Euthanasia Coaster. Have you heard about this? Is legit coming out of the Royal College of Art back in 2010. And the design of the roller coaster, as fits its name, is actually that it is a death experience. Like by the time you finish the roller coaster, you die. Like that's the point. And the idea is that it sends people off, sends people out of this world with, um, with elegance and euphoria. So it's designed, I'm not making this up, in such a way that you go up and down and you do these seven loops, which by virtue of the speed of accumulated G-force of about, of about 10 for 60 seconds, which essentially puts you out of life. Like you end that thing and you're gone. And I'm thinking like, what would possess someone to do something like this? And that's, <laughs> that's a particularly dramatic example, right? Like in the course of normal life, it's not quite that intense, but you see these things. Uh, we're co- my wife and I are coaching a t-ball team <laughs> right now. And uh, it's, yeah, it's fun. And it's actually quite fun all around. But you just, these boys do random stuff. Like I look over and my pitcher's filling his glove with dirt, you know. I, I usually coach in the field, the right side of the field, so I got the first baseman and the right fielder. I looked down the other day, my right fielder's just doing some one-handed push-ups, just working out, you know, just working on the form. And it's just, it's great, but you get it. Whatever, whatever form of life you're in, you understand, you know, people do oh, weird things. And I bring this up because um, we're talking today about a passage of Scripture where Jesus, honestly, just does more than one strange thing. Just looks a little bit odd. And so if you would go ahead and turn to John chapter 7, because that's where we're going to be. John uh, chapter 7. And as you're turning there, let's keep thinking about this. We, we make peace with this fact that people do strange things, because most of the time, it's pretty disconnected from us. Like, it doesn't have an impact on us if we see strangers doing odd stuff. However, if it gets closer to home, you start to notice a little bit more. If a friend or a cousin does something odd, you're kind of like, oh, okay, that's a little embarrassing. If it's like your child or your, or your parent or your spouse, you're like, oh, okay, this is very close to home. Well, how about, it's when, how about when it's like the guy who you've decided to let run the world, like run your life, the person you call Savior and Lord? It becomes a little bit uncomfortable. And that's some of what we're going to see in this story, John chapter 7. Now, we're going to cover John 7 over the course of the next couple of weeks. Y'all are stuck with me for two weeks. And we're going to camp out in this chapter chapter of scripture for both of them. Next week, we're going to kind of look at a broad angle view and see if we can't capture some lessons that John is trying to teach us. Today, we're going to focus ourselves on a particular portion of what's going on here. But before we dig into that detail, I would like to read the whole thing. Uh, it's, just, it's a long chapter. I mean, it's 52 verses. We're going to read the whole thing, which is kind of crazy. But if we don't, I just, I don't know if you're going to get a sense of the flow. It'll be a little choppy. So, 
Uh, As I read, just try to picture what's going on. I'll try to keep this with minimal interruptions. Just notice that Jesus does strange things and people think that he's odd. They don't know what to do with it. He sometimes looks arrogant. He sometimes looks deceitful. He seems to be governed by this magical power that keeps people from doing anything wrong to him. Anyway, you can check it for yourself. John chapter 7. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 and go all the way through verse 52. Follow along with me. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea, that's the southern portion of the land of Israel, because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee until the next verse, verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. It wasn't until halfway through the festival that Jesus did go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered them, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has Moses not not given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus said to them, look, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. But because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So you get the picture. Jesus disagreeing with the leaders. We'll fill in some of the details later on. Here's, let's keep going for now. Stay with me. Verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? 
On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the last bit, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Well, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Well, there you go. That's the story. That's the big picture of Jesus crashing the party at the Festival of Tabernacles that we're going to be unpacking over the course of the next couple of weeks together. Now, I told you a minute ago, I want to focus this morning on one particular part of it. And the part that I want to key in on is found in verse 17. To me, one of the stranger parts of this text, where Jesus says, after he's being questioned by different people, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will know whether my teaching comes from God or, is it, or, or whether it's on its own. Like that's, if you slow down and think about it, that's a little bit odd. He's saying, if you want to know like what to do with me, just do what I say. The basic idea is you obey him first and then you gain confidence, then you gain assurance that he's legit, that he's the real deal. So here's our quick formula. We're going to unpack it a little bit later, but I want to give it to you now so you can kind of percolate on it a little bit. In three words, what I think is going on here is simple. Obedience precedes assurance. Very tight. Obedience, doing what God says, doing what Jesus says, precedes, comes before assurance being quite confident that Jesus is the man. It's easy enough to understand, but it's also a little off-putting. It's a little bit strange. If you're not sure about me, obey me, and then you'll be sure, really? How about you prove yourself first? Now, like I said, we're going to dig into that, but as before we do, I want to back up and keep this big picture view, keep this bird's eye mentality, so that we'll recognize this is just one of many things that Jesus does here that seem a little bit odd. For one thing, he's hiding out in the backwoods away from the action. That's where this story starts. It says, after this, Jesus stayed up in Galilee, up north in the land of Israel, because he didn't want to go down south because they were trying to kill him. Well, let's get a little bit of context. After what, right? Let me give you the picture. About a year before these events took place, Jesus went down to Jerusalem, and he saw this paralyzed man sitting beside this pool, trying to get well, and he healed him. You can read about it in John 5. He healed him, but he did it on the Sabbath day, which you may know is a day of rest in Israel where you're not allowed to work. So he heals this guy on the Sabbath, which goes against some of their laws and rules that they had put in place to try to protect people from working on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders come down pretty hard on him, but he doesn't back down. He just says, I understand God. You guys don't understand God. That was about a year ago. 
Then he kind of makes his way up north, and about six months ago, he had thousands of people around him, 5,000 plus, and they're out in this field, and he, they're, they're hungry, and so he like miraculously feeds them. You probably heard this story, with five loaves and two fish. So he feeds all these people, and then to top things off, he walks on the water, kind of impressive, but after this, he preaches a sermon to thousands of people. The theme of the sermon was about how Jesus is the bread of life. He's the most satisfying one. Good theme, not great results, because most of those thousands of people at the end of this sermon went home. They said, Jesus, you're going too far. You're calling for too much. We can't understand what you're saying. You're just a little bit too off for us. So it's been an interesting season for Jesus. And we're now six months after that sermon, one year after that event in Jerusalem, and Jesus has been hanging out up north, kind of staying away from the action. And the brothers are like, listen, like you, you came to, to rule the world, right? What are you doing up here? And the Festival of Tabernacles was happening down in Jerusalem, which we'll talk about more next week. Big party. A lot of people would come because they were celebrating the harvest, and they were celebrating the way God had led them. And it was, it was in the fall, so it was good weather. And a lot of sources will tell you it's the most frequently attended, like the most amount of people would come to this party. There was three big parties throughout the year. This was the big one. And the brothers are like, listen, Jesus, like this is a great time for you to go public. And they don't really believe in him, but they know what he thinks he came for. So they say, go down there. And Jesus is like, no, nah, I'm not going. Like you guys can go because there's nothing at stake for you. If I go, ah, it won't go so well. So I'm not going. But then he goes. Like this is another strange thing. Where Jesus, in one verse, says, I'm not going to the festival. And the very next verse, goes down and heads to the festival. And once he gets there, there's confusion all around. They don't understand the things that he's saying. Some people think that he's the Messiah. Some people think that he's a prophet or a deceiver. There's all sorts of, you heard it, there's all sorts of, well, he's supposed to come from nowhere. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Apparently, they didn't know he really did. He's not supposed to come from Galilee. There's just confusion. And when Jesus opens his mouth, it doesn't exactly help things. <laughs> he kind of sounds like Yoda. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, I'm going to a place where you cannot go. You cannot find me because you cannot go there. And then they're like, what? There's a lot of head scratching going on because Jesus is doing strange things. Now, let me pause for a second if I could and reflect on what I think this text may, how I think this text may need to hit us. How it hits me, I'll just tell you that. One of my basic assumptions about like life and, and, and following Jesus is that people, whether they're following him or not, tend to create a Jesus that fits their preferences. It's not hard to see. It, often, often, you just Google images of Jesus, and it's very easy to spot that people are making a Jesus that looks like what they want him to look like. You can find a white Jesus, black Jesus, brown Jesus. You can find a Republican Jesus or a Democrat Jesus. You can find super patriotic Jesus or anti-American Jesus. You can find a Jesus who loves borders. You can find a Jesus who hates borders. Like, you can find a Jesus who pretty much fits anything anybody wants. And I think the issue here is that we have this tendency to create a fake Jesus, even if it's a fake Jesus, to create a picture of him that fits what we want. So this is obvious. We know this. I've, we talked about this probably even here. But lately I've been backing up and asking the question, why do we do this? Like, why do we have this tendency to take whatever we want Jesus to be and then construct a picture of him that fits that? And I think part of the reason has to be the fact that sometimes Jesus doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes he's hard to understand. Sometimes he does and says things that are confusing. Sometimes he breaks our expectations. I don't know what your questions are for Jesus, 
Maybe you look at Jesus and say, why did, why did you make the Bible so difficult to live with? Or maybe you look at him and say, why don't you just come back already? Or why did you like do this in two stages anyway? Or why don't you give us a better answer to our questions about suffering? Or why don't you give me wisdom faster than you do? I asked for it. You said you'd give it, but I don't see it happening. Where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? And whatever your questions may be, listen, if you get close enough to Jesus, I do think that you will find him satisfying and you will find him unlike anything you've ever met in a good way, true and and beautiful and good and wise and intelligent and caring and all of these wonderful things. But I also think that you'll find him odd and confusing and perplexing because he doesn't always do what we think he should do. And as a result, we don't always know what to do with him. And that's some of what's going on in this passage. That's the dynamic of this story. What do we do with a Jesus who doesn't make sense to us? And that's where things get really strange because Jesus gives us an answer. Well, you can't figure me out. Do what I say. You don't understand me. Put into practice what I'm telling you to do. That's what he said, verse 17. Anybody who chooses to do the will of God will know whether my teaching comes from God or whether it comes from just me. That's what he says. If you're not sure what to think of me, You want me to prove myself to you? You want me to give you better reasons to believe in me? Just go ahead and start obeying and we'll go from there. That's weird. If this was 1995, we'd be like, say what? Remember when everybody said, everybody say, say what? Thank you. You did a little bit better than the last service. That's what we say though. Like you want me to, you want me to just put it into, you're telling me you want me to obey first and then comes confidence. And I think Jesus is saying, yeah, obedience precedes assurance. That's how it works calls you to obey, promises that you'll have confidence as you go. And when I read past this really quickly, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But when I slow down and think about it, this doesn't strike me as normal. This is why we invent new Jesuses. And when I'm not sort of, you know, when I'm being honest with myself, I'll admit I do the same thing. And so I'll often, as a spiritual exercise, I'll try to look around at the culture, at my subculture, and I'll say, like, what kind of Jesuses do we create today? And it seems to me that, among other things, the 2018 version of Jesus is much more likely to offer us a hug of total affirmation than to furl his eyebrow and tell us what to do. We prefer a Jesus who is very much more supportive than he is demanding. And yet, here in this text, Jesus is demanding, like on two levels. First of all, he calls us to obey him. That's like enough on its own. We're not big fans of being told what to do. Suggestion? awesome. Advice, I'll take it or leave it. Command, won't you back up off me a little bit? You know what I'm saying? Like, why don't you try this this week? I often like to dare people to just do some obedience experiments of their own. Just go around barking out orders. Just walk into the office and be like, hey, somebody give me a cup of coffee. (laughs) When you come home, hey, somebody come rub my feet. Like, just try it. Now, I'm not responsible for the results, you know. If you end the week less employed or more single than when you started it, (laughs) It's on you, you know, but we, especially when it comes to religion, it's just, it's so, we recognize that obedience can be so abused, authority can be so abused that we're supposed to obey our thirst and we're supposed to follow our heart and we're supposed to trust our intuition and I'm supposed to be true to myself and yet here Jesus comes along as elsewhere saying, you guys need to do what I'm saying and he doesn't just say, you need to do what I'm saying, he says you need to decide to do what I'm saying before I offer you a full lockdown case that I should be trusted. Just do it. That, so I'll buy a product from, from you if you can convince me why I should buy the product. 
If you can make it, like, I'll agree to the deal if you can make it clear and desirable if the terms are there. Now, we, we, we think about this even as kids. You're negotiating things. You know, I remember playing with my sisters, and you probably did this if you had siblings or you were on the other side of it. Maybe I'd say, hey, listen, like, I'll play dolls. I'll play Barbies with you if you play baseball with me. Or maybe it's the other way around, whatever. And uh, my little sister would often take me up on this, you know. But what if, like, then we played some baseball, and she's like, okay, it's time to play with my toys. And I was like, no, nah, let's just play some more baseball. Like, I'd be playing alone pretty quickly, because that's not the deal she agreed to. But you've you got to make it a good deal. You remember back whenever um, more people would do the door-to-door salesman stuff? I remember growing up as a kid, I remember this one time these guys came to our door, knocked on our door, and they were trying to sell my, uh, my family this uh, vacuum cleaner, right? And they came in and they did all these demonstrations about how this vacuum cleaner is so great and it makes the air clean and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, what if they came to the door and they're like, hey, you should buy our vacuum cleaner. How much is it? It's $1,200. What does it do? Buy it and you'll find out. <laughs> No one is going to do that. Like, you're not, I don't, hope you don't work on commission because it ain't happening for you. you just, there's no way I'm, I'm just going to jump in on something that costs me before I'm sure. And yet Jesus looks at a group of people who aren't sure what to do with him. And instead of giving a bunch of reasons why, he basically says, hey, just start practicing the will of God as I see it. My Kool-Aid is clean. You don't believe me? Just take a swig. You'll find out for yourself. That's what Jesus says here. How can we make sense of this? Why does Jesus get to do this? As always, I want to be very careful not to blunt the sharp edges of this text. I do not want to domesticate Jesus. I do not want to make Jesus easier to live with than he really is. But at the same time, I do think we're given some reasons why this is still a good deal, even in this story. I do think part of the picture here is that Jesus is a person who, like, it kind of in a roundabout, weird sort of way, makes sense that you would just jump in with him even before you have all the questions answered. I see two things coming from this text. So here's the stretch run. How does this make sense? Obedience precedes assurance. How does this make sense? Why should you jump in? Two things. Number one, Jesus offers life through faith. Both key words. Jesus offers life through faith. Now, this is a helpful trick when you're reading the Gospel of John in particular. If you're ever not sure, like, what are we supposed to do with this? Just remember this verse that comes at the end, John chapter 20, verse 31. It's, it's probably the original conclusion to the book. And then John added chapter 21 as an appendix. So this is the end of John 20. Here's what John, the writer of this gospel, says. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Okay, fair enough. Did a lot. You didn't write it all. Verse 31, he gives us his purpose statement. But these are written that you may believe or have faith, same word, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus offers life through faith. What does our story have to do with Jesus offering life through faith? That's always the question to ask. And when John talks about life, of course he's talking about eternal life and this blissful, you know, this new creation that is kind of described for us in in glowing terms. And we don't know exactly what it will be like, but it will be awesome and we're going to live forever with him. It's going to be wonderful. But that's that's not all of it. Like, yes, it will last forever, but it starts right now. Jesus himself says in John 17, 3, when he's praying to God, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and that they may know me whom you have sent. This living in a a life-giving relationship with God as we go about the process of our lives. So he came to bring life, and this life is not something that can be confined to a classroom. Now, I love classrooms. It's where I spend a decent amount of my life where we test theories and bat around ideas and talk things through. But they have their limit. They have their blind spot. 
It's easy to talk things through and then feel like you actually accomplished something, even if you haven't actually put any of it into practice. And even if you're not a classroom person, we can fall into this same kind of trap as church people. Oh, I've listened to the last four sermons, man. Awesome, cool. What are you doing? Like, how are you putting it into practice? Oh, I study the scriptures for myself, and I really dig in. Oh, like, wonderful. I think that's necessary and life-giving and rich. Like, now what? How are you living it out? Because Jesus didn't come to bring information. He came to bring life. And so he cuts through the games that we sometimes play. He says, I'm not interested in just adding a bunch of stuff for, for a classroom or for a room like this. Like, this is designed for the streets. Put it into practice. Action. Cool. What kind of action? Faith kind of action. Life through faith. This is a relationship that only makes sense if you trust him. That's the nature of what this thing is. That's what he said in the middle of the sermon that nobody liked in John chapter 6. They were like, well, just tell us what it is the work that God requires. And Jesus said, fine, this is John 6, 29. The work that God requires is this, that you believe in the one he sent, that you put your faith in me. So this is a faith, a, a trust relationship where like it, it, there comes a time when Jesus just kind of cuts through the games. He's done talking. He's done proving himself to people who are stroking their chins, saying, why don't you give me one more reason to believe in you? And he says, why don't you put it into practice? Because faith doesn't become faith until it's acted on. Action not based on absolute certainty, but trust. Trust. I texted Mark a couple weeks ago. And if you're new with us, the lead pastor, is, uh, he's, he spends a couple of weeks in the summer ministering to some students up in Michigan, so he's gone for the next few weeks. He kind of looks like me. He's a little bit balder, and, and he likes the Cubs. So anyway, he'll be back pretty soon. But he, he, preaches, uh, he preached all through the spring, and I texted him. I said, I've been there, but I'm just interested from your perspective. What is it that you think God is calling us to do from these passages? And he sent me, it was pretty cool, he sent me some different thoughts he was been thinking and praying through. But the heart of it, he said, was, I just want people, to, if, if they say they're going to trust Jesus, to put it into practice, whatever that means for them. To actually embody this in the way in which they're living their lives. Faith, life through faith. That's why he says, just let's start and then you'll know because he came to bring life through faith. But it's not blind faith, mind you. So we have one more. Even in this story, we're given a little bit more. Here's the second thing, the heart of it from John 7. Jesus knows what you don't. That's the heart of it. Jesus knows what I don't know. Jesus knows what you don't know. Now from a Jewish perspective, the tension in this text would be pretty clear. It's not as clear to us because their categories are different from our categories in our world. But in the, in the, in the, in, in, if you're a Jew and you're reading this story and you're like aware of Jewish culture, you know what's being asked. What's being asked here is, is Jesus a true prophet or is Jesus a deceiver? And when they say deceiver, that's not just does he occasionally not tell the truth. That's like a code word for crooked politician, to put it in our terms. That's like a code for somebody who shows up and says, this is what God wants, but it's not actually what God wants. And the whole Bible, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 13, write that reference down if you're taking notes. Go read Deuteronomy 13 later on, and Deuteronomy 18 as well, and you'll see some things about what you're supposed to do with a deceiver. You put these people to death because this is serious business. And this actually became a standard line of interpretation about Jesus among the Jew Jewish people who didn't put their faith in him. A lot, of course, did. Among those who didn't put their faith in Jesus, for the next couple hundred years, in rabbis' writings, Jesus was described as a person who led the people astray, a deceiver, an imposter. Jesus, of course, claims the opposite. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. I am a prophet sent by God to clarify the truth for you. And he does give one example. I appreciate this. He does say, here's how you could know. 
that my wisdom is legit. And he talks about how he got in trouble in Jerusalem for healing a guy on the Sabbath. But he points out the fact that if they have a boy who's born and on the eighth day in the Jewish culture you're supposed to circumcise the boy as a matter of showing your faith in God and your dedication of the child to him. And he says, you'll break your own rule if the child should be circumcised on the Sabbath day because you recognize that this law precedes this other law. So you'll circumcise the boy. You'll take care of a particular part of his body. How is it that you'll take care of a particular part of a body to obey God, but you have a problem with me for obeying an entire body just because I did it on the Sabbath? So he points out an example from their context, of course, that shows that his teaching is to be trusted, that even when they think he's wrong, he's right, and the same is true today. Jesus doesn't do what we would do because Jesus knows what we don't know. He has the inside scoop. He has the inside track. He doesn't make sense from a standard point of view because he enjoys a unique point of view. At the end of the day, I don't know that this is too hard to understand, I mean, think about the way we engage our nine-year-olds. You know what I'm saying? When our nine-year-olds ask us for an explanation of what it is that we're doing, we'll tell them some, we'll tell them as much as they can understand, but at a certain point, we stop explaining because there's no point to it. This is when we say, well, it's because, you're, because mama said so, because dad said so. Like, this is the way it works. And it's not that we don't care about them. It's not that they're not valuable. It's that they don't have the capacity to grasp the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. It's no knock on them. They just don't have the experience. It's not broad enough. Their their understanding is not deep enough. Their brains aren't developed enough to grasp what it is that we're talking about. And so we just say, you're just going to need to trust me on this one. You're just going to need to do what I'm saying. And so it is with us. Now, granted, we are much more advanced and developed than, hopefully, the nine-year-olds. But the gap between us and our nine-year-olds, us and our fourth graders, is not nearly as large as the gap between us and Jesus. He doesn't act normal because he isn't normal. He is not a normal person. When Jesus crashes your party like he did the Festival of Tabernacles, you will absolutely mishandle the situation until you realize that he is not a normal person. He alone knows all things. So what do we do with this? Well, honestly, I think that the, the application of this text is pretty simple. It's a classic call to humility, which does not mean considering yourself some sort of loser or garbage or trash or unvaluable. That's not what humility is. Humility is having a proper understanding of who you are. And in your relationship with Jesus, to have humility is to recognize he's the one who calls for obedience. I'm the one who follows. So what do you do with this? If Jesus is calling you to do something, you do it. I'm not even going to try to guess. I'm sure the Holy Spirit's working on some of you saying, this is what I want you to do. You do it because he deserves to be trusted because he knows everything. But if there's not a specific thing, what do the rest of us do? I don't know what he's calling me to do. Humility in our relationships with others. This is where Jesus has been taking me with this passage. In our conflicts, in our conversations, in our fights, I think we gotta remember, I am not Jesus. I am a normal human being. Let's try this. Everybody say this with me. I am a normal human being. Now, I know some of you, you're a little bit weird, so you know that's not gonna work. So let's try it this way as well. I am not Jesus. So when I'm arguing with my wife or when I'm in a dispute with my children or with my parents, I am not Jesus. I don't know everything. When I go to work and it's my employees, employers, coworkers, whatever it may be, when I go to school and it's my students, when it's my peers, my friends, my brothers, sisters, whatever it may be, this week, just give yourself a good dose of humility by reminding yourself on a regular basis, I don't know. You know what? Here's another. When you get on Facebook and try to share your opinions about what's going on in various parts of the world, I am not Jesus. I don't know everything. You start there, it will go well. A little humility goes a long way, amen? Let me say that again. A little humility goes a long way, amen?
cool. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this text and the strangeness of your son. And we pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see him. Help us to get out of the way, God, and help us to know specifically what it is you want us to do to embody these truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.